Skepticism has gotten a bit of a bad rap in recent years. For a general definition, we can consider skepticism to be a questioning attitude or doubt toward knowledge claims that are seen as mere belief or dogma. In earlier eras, when people's lives were deeply entangled in superstition and confined by the dogmatic beliefs of the church, skepticism offered a welcome tool with which to cut through the shit. I remember seeing an exhibit at the Museum of Jurassic Technology in Los Angeles about various folk beliefs. While some of the ideas, like soaking moldy bread in water and then using that water to wash wounds, we can now understand the benefits of, namely the penicillin and bread mold acting as an antibiotic, other remedies, like having a sick child put their mouth around a male duck's beak and inhale its breath, well, I guess not every superstition turns out to reveal impressive ancient wisdom. As science continued to make strides in explaining the whys and what-have-yous of the world, skepticism slowly turned from being a tool used to dispel dogma to being a defensive posture used to protect legitimate science from what its proponents declared to be dangerous pseudoscience. Thus, like the church authorities before them, these defenders began eagerly rooting out heresies wherever they could find them, while closing their minds to obvious drivel that no serious person would dare take seriously. But true skepticism actually requires a rather open mind. An honest skeptic needs to be ready to embrace new knowledge, properly vetted and verified, otherwise they become merely the embittered defenders of their own scientific dogma. Much has been said about the supposedly incompatible views expressed by science, religion, and that dark horse, magic. Many a magician has begun their book with an impassioned defense of why their magic isn't just stage trickery or foolish old superstitions, but deserves to be taken seriously. Now, while I myself prefer to take my magic seriously, I'm grateful for the increasing volume of wizard voices in this conversation. The new writers and thinkers extending the work Robert Anton Wilson and the Chaos Magicians got started in the last century, but expanding that project to meet the needs of our increasingly weird world. When I first set out to become a wizard, I didn't know a thing about any other wizards, but I figured there had to be some others out there. After all, in a world of 9 billion living, breathing human souls, I couldn't be the only one willing to take a go at being Gandalf. Finding out about the Wizard of New Zealand was a major moment for me, when I realized there was not only another guy walking around in wizard robes, talking about magic, but many of his ideas reflected my own, the essential power of humor and play, being willing to look at unusual ideas from new angles, and so on and so forth. But then I found out the Wizard of New Zealand had an apprentice, a charming chap by the name of Ari Freeman, and we took up a very fruitful correspondence which included having Ari on the podcast previously for a general chat about his own approach to magic, art, performance, and play. But now Ari has taken his wizardry, and wizardry in general, a huge leap forward, writing a new book titled Pragmatic Magical Thinking, Real Magic Explained, which is a clarion call to self-identified skeptics to actually take a look at what us weirdo wizards have been trying to say for centuries. Now, Thanks to Ari's incredible research, we've got the receipts to back up our claims as this book is laden with psychological studies and cutting-edge neurological research digging into the odd ways our minds, memories, and identities actually work. The result is a powerful contribution to the wizard's lineage of magical literature and a book that I definitely would recommend you reading. I enjoyed it a lot myself, and you can find it in its newly released edition from Aeon Spirit Books, and there'll be a link 
and the podcast description as well. I think this book, Pragmatic Magical Thinking, offers all of us an exciting new tool with which to pry open closed minds and provides an essential primer on how to think magically and pragmatically. Ari, welcome back to Ritual Space. Thank you very much, Devin. I'm always so happy to get a chance to chat with you. And I think through our line of communication, we're creating a line that basically goes through the center of the earth. So there's like yeah. <laughs> two wizard poles that are activated right now as we, as we converse. That's right. So let's dive right in. What's our magic word going to be? Our magic word today is pragmatism. Ooh, that's a good one. All right. Say it with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Pragmatism. Pragmatism. Now, this word kind of gets thrown around Mm. more colloquially these days, but do you want to just give a quick background on what pragmatism is? Yeah, so I specifically mean um, the philosophy of pragmatism, which is like a get-out-of-jail-free card that allows you to do whatever you would like to do in the world as long as you can show that it works. Mm. Pragmatism was a philosophy, um, and the main proponent was was a guy called William James, who is the most important philosopher that the United States produced. Pragmatism is the philosophy whereby you define truth based on what you can get done in the world. So whether it makes sense or not, if you can show that something produces real-world results, then it is at some level true. There's Mm -hmm. something about it that is true. And uh, William James wrote a beautiful uh, defense in the late 19th century called On the Varieties of Religious Experience. Mm -hmm. And in it he did, uh, basically, if you want the the detailed and uh, heady answer to the whole atheist movement, read that book. It, in very um, rational terms, it, he goes through every possible type of religious experience he can imagine and it gives a defense on it based on what it does. The thing is, is these things don't necessarily do exactly what the people who believe in them say they do, and yet they often do something. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So... Now, my idea was, well, if you can do such a beautiful uh, defense of religious experiences through this philosophy of pragmatism, why has nobody written a book defending magic and spells and (laughs) magical effects the same way? And that's my book. It's called Pragmatic Magical Thinking. Um, It came out in October last year on Halloween by, uh, from Aeon Books in London. And yeah, it's on sale anywhere you buy books online. And we're going to talk about this book pretty much the whole episode, but I, I think it's just incredible what you've done because I think for a long time, it's been hard to kind of say that you do magic and feel like you have a place in the world. You know, it used to mm. be, oh, I don't do stage magic. But even now, I think, especially as a lot of these ideas have gone mainstream with the law of attraction and this kind of manifestation, new Mm. agey culture, that it's hard to say, I'm interested in magic, but no, not that kind. No, not that kind. And I think you've really given such a solid foundation where I was reading it and I was like, yep, this kind, this is the kind. This is exactly where it's about psychology and philosophy, but not just going and getting lost in those things, really thinking about... Doing something with it, yeah. Doing something with it. And I think we're both sort of in that lineage uh, of Robert Anton Wilson and Mm, talking about belief in these different things. But then, really, I love how much you ground it in different research studies and other people's work mm. in writing and really kind of bring these figures together and says, this is this is a movement and this is a, a, a toolkit that goes back very far and we don't have to create some fictional history about Atlantis to justify it. We can actually recognize that this has been a powerful tool that's been mm. used um, in all cultures. Well, one thing I'd like to comment on that, Devin, is mm-hmm. it seems to me and this is my core mission is to deal with this problem. It seems to me that every time you have a group who I 
has a strong identification, like, oh, I'm a witch or I'm yeah. an atheist skeptic. And uh, it's that you get a group of people who have an author- a particular authority that they find authoritative that they want to kiss up to or, mm-hmm. or borrow from. And then they have another group of people that they couldn't possibly talk to because it's right. beneath them. And uh, this is a deep problem with the, with the magical community. One thing I try and avoid doing is over-identifying with any particular group. And I'm very interested in helping people talk to each other. That is the mission behind all mm. these books that I'm, I have planned and the and pragmatic magical thinking. Now, you mentioned stage magic, right? Mm-hmm. And so this has been this long, like, oh, we couldn't possibly be associated with the stage magicians amongst occultists and casters of spells and witches and things. And mm-hmm. this goes back, you know, with uh, Alistair Crowley changing the spelling of the word yep. magic. The old CK. To, mm-hmm. With the CK. So that, um, no, I want to dissolve all those boundaries honestly, and show uh, what is useful about the other team. And so I argue, rather than starting your magical practice by buying an Alistair Crowley book or, or buying um, some sort of, you know, a witch book by, you know, Lightning Rod Raven Shoes the Third or whatever, mm-hmm. start by actually looking at stage magic. And the reason is, is we know it's a trick, now, if you don't know how you can be tricked, how can you really know anything for certain? And I argue that actually magic is a trick, is always a trick, always involves trickery. No, it, some, it often involves things that, that produce real results and are real, but it's always partly trickery. Mm-hmm. And you often get into the real results by tricking yourself and other people. Exactly. Here's the thing, though. Your entire sensory system, as shown by science, and uh, the function of your brain is trickery all the way down. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, we only see a very small part of the electromagnetic spectrum as visible light, right? Now, so colors seem real to us. And colors generally, like the color blue or the color red, denote a band of uh, frequencies in the light system, except that there are two colors that aren't that. Magenta is, looks to us like a real color, like a, mm-hmm. like a single color, and yet it's made out of blue light, which is the fast-moving uh, frequencies on one side of the visible spectrum, and red light, which is mm-hmm. the opposite slow frequencies on the other and so we see it as a single thing, but it's actually a combination of two phenomena and our brain is tricked or our visual system's tricked. Then there's yellow. So a lot of people are looking on a computer screen to, to look up this podcast. When you see yellow on a computer screen, again, you're seeing two frequencies, not one. One is uh, green and one is red. Mm-hmm. But the truth is there's two yellows that you can't tell the difference between. So when you're looking at a flower, like a daffodil, there is no way to tell whether it's the single band of frequencies yellow or the one that's made out of two totally different ones. You don't know. So this trickery is built into what it even means to be a human being. And many of the things we do that we, we define as real involve trickery at some point. So in a sense... The stage magic trick is a microcosm of the larger trickery that is involved in being a human being in general, and that is a perfect way to get into magic. Absolutely, and I think the thing that ties in so beautifully with that is if you read books on stage magic, trickery Mm. for its own sake isn't compelling. If I just make something disappear and you're like, huh, okay, there must be some trick to it or like, I don't know, it's not very moving or captivating. So the trickery in magic is all pragmatically applied in the goal of telling a story and creating an emotional experience of Mm. astonishment, surprise, beauty, wonder, whatever it might be. And I Mm. think that is the other thing of magic, not just walking around going, ah, that yellow is not really yellow, but recognizing, okay, 
that jerky thing that someone said might not actually be the jerky thing that I took in. And I have different ways that I can look at it Mm. and tease it apart. And how does that help me pragmatically instead of just walking around dissolving everything in a soup of skepticism? I think what you get at so beautifully in the book is that you're using this to try and figure out how to live a more interesting, creative, magical existence. Or just notice what how strange the things around you already are and how many mm-hmm. opportunities. So w- one thing I'm very careful of that I've made a decision um, since writing this book is not to get into the self-help mm. uh, industry <laughs> because uh, I'm very squeamish about it and I find there's a lot of charlatanism in there. Yeah. But, um, but however, and um, I'm just going to caveat this with a statement firstly, You can use the ideas in my book to improve your life, but you can also use it to fuck up your life. And it's not up to me what you do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not, it's not, that's your choice. The sword swings both ways. (laughs) But if you are going through life feeling stuck, like you're doing the same thing over and over again, then uh, noticing that there are actually many opportunities around you based on how you pay attention to things. Mm -hmm. But this will make your life more interesting, but not necessarily easier. I'm just throwing that caveat into there. But it will get you unstuck. Absolutely. And I I can give a very clear example of this. The other day, I was in a funky mood, and I was like, God, what can I do to just kind of shake off this feeling? And I was like, oh, I'm going to take a different route to work. I'm just literally going to like drive this longer route that's going to take me like five extra minutes. Mm. I don't normally take it. And it totally did. By the time I got to work, I was feeling much better. And then I think it was like later that same day, I was reading in your book about context-dependent memory. And it's not like my route to work is laden with just bad vibes, but just that act of going a different way allowed me to kind of be in a new environment, take on different emotional states. And yeah, I think just recognizing those things... um, yeah, you know, having having more tools in your toolkit is going to be helpful, uh, whether or not you want to build. Do we need home. to explain that what context dependent? Yeah, memory I was going to say. Yeah, I was going to say, and if you could give yeah. the, um, I think the uh, scuba example is a beautiful one. Okay, so there's a fair amount of neuroscience in my book describing magic, because I I want to write I, I wrote a book that is skeptical friendly, and for simply skeptics like science, so I'm using science, you know. Yeah. I could, but I'm, uh, I'm one of these shifty people who will um, adopt whatever tools I need to, to get what I want done, which is a magician's approach. But I can talk that way. In neuroscience, the science of memory, basically it has been discovered that the components of memory that are actually stored in a human brain are piecemeal and, to use a computer uh, analogy, are like lossy information Mm -hmm. that is to be more efficient you don't store an entire model of the world in your head every time you want to remember something so you generally you store the amount in your memory that can be recalled if an element in your environment and I call these the keys to the memories if the key comes up then you will remember the thing. And if the key doesn't come up, you will have trouble recalling that thing. It's Mm -hmm. like it's locked away. It's like it's encrypted until something comes up in your environment that that brings it out. So this is why uh, someone who's lived in a house for 20 years and the house burns down has a level of sadness as if they've lost a part of themselves because neuroscience speaking, in terms of memory, they have. They've lost yeah. the keys, photographs, bits of furniture, artwork on the wall, you know, even the layout of their house. And it's going to be very hard for them to recall, to be reminded of some of the things that they cared about because they don't have those things in their environment. Now, there's... The thing with the human environment, and this is very important to magic, is that we evolved not only with an environment of physical objects, but also an environment of language and an environment of symbolism, an environment of relationships to people, things, animals, plants, everything. All of that's your mm-hmm. environment. So context-dependent memory 
is when some aspect of your environment, and it can be any of those things, it could be hanging out with your wife mm. or husband, it could be um, you see a toy from your childhood being played with by a little kid across the road, you see a dog that looks like your childhood dog, whatever it is, they unlock the keys. And uh, frequently they unlock the same emotions you had when you were in the presence of that thing that caused the original memory. Mm-hmm. Cool. So uh, Devin was saying he goes to work and he went a, a different way. And basically he went a way that made him open to new things and new thoughts and paying attention rather than being in a sort of semi-robotic state that he kept meeting the keys as he was driving around his environment that unlocked his worries, his concerns that put him in the frame of mind that he'd gone, gotten habitual to. So changing your environment uh, can radically change your mood and as simple as, which is why people like to go for walks, you know, mm-hmm. but something as simple as uh, going to a beach or going on holiday or something can be like a reset. Now, the other one that's really important is called state-dependent memory and that's where the triggers are internally generated by your moods and emotions and states of mind. And this is why someone who has an anger management problem, every time they get angry, they remember every other time they got angry. I think every one of us is why I had one of these arguments. Mm-hmm. So they're arguing with a partner or a friend and you go, or a brother or sister, and you resolve you actually kind of resolve the first issue. Or they, they, you know, and then they're like, oh, and then there was this other time that right. you also pissed me off. And then you did and this at my sister's you always wedding. Do this. Yeah. yeah, you know, and what's happening is that these other ones are getting, these other memories are getting unlocked because you felt angry a previous yeah. time in your life. You went to the cabinet where you keep the cereal and what else is there? All the other boxes of cereal. So it's like you're going yeah. into that angry mood and you're like, and now I'm suddenly thinking about all these other things that pissed yes. me off. And yeah, I think um, the one that I'll just highlight real quick, because I think it just gave such a clear example, is the test where they had scuba divers Mm. go underwater and memorize a list of words and then try and come up and like repeat those words and then go back underwater. And when they were back in the aquatic environment, the words came up. And I I think anyone that's traveled back to like, you know, the town where you went to college or something, and suddenly you're like, oh my God, I forgot about this friend we had and this night that we went to this thing. And Mm. it's like, yeah, because those cues live there. And when you're in an environment where nobody has that, it's, it's hard. I think I experience this whenever I travel and you come back from a long trip in some foreign country and it's like waking up from a dream because mm. all of those cues that were kind of holding those memories are suddenly, you're like back in your regular world and you're like, mm. oh my God, it just shrinks it down in this weird way. So how do you use um, uh, this, this info? Like, do you have anything in your magical practice or things that you do that kind of work with these tools in particular? Um, well, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I'm a uh, performing musician. I front a psychedelic funk band called Rhomboid, and uh, we write original songs, but we also do psychedelic funk remake shows of um, David Bowie's material and mm. the le- psychedelic era Beatles, the stuff that they never played live because it was too hard. We yeah. do that stuff. <laughs> 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 like I've got really good musicians with me. Um yeah. And but I remake them, so yeah. th- there'll be a funk version of a Bowie song. There'll be we did a um, a dub version of "Fixing a Hole" by the mm. Beatles that that yeah alternated between a, du- a psychedelic dub and 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 ska music. <laughs> like, so like, yeah. yeah, and then so the instrumentation's changed and everything. So you kind of like you're bringing you're forming a memory based on people's childhood music. I am, and then. Uh, but then I'm also reforming it with a new experience at the same time and interweaving mm. those things. And the effect is outstanding, the, the effect on people, because most cover bands would just um, try and sound like the record. But yeah. but yeah, you end up creating something new that also ties in the feelings. It's very manipulative, but all music is, you must know. Well, you, and you, you said this um, in the book about being a musician and learning to think of this as charm spells and how exactly, you're yeah. paying attention to the audience. 
And in the DJing I've been doing over the last couple of years, mm. the power of a song that is recognizable, like it's great to have, you know, some funky house track that's brand new and awesome. Mm. But even if you have just that recognizable sample, someone's hearing that and going, I've danced to this before yeah. and now I want to dance again. Like that's right. Even if it's kind of a cheesy wedding tune, you know, and if you then can use that to bridge into something that's new and different, you've created that experience of like, this makes you think about dancing in the past and now you're thinking about dancing yeah. here and suddenly you're dancing. There we go. So we the song running. is a spell and the s- yeah. to make people dance and or whatever it's trying to do. You can clear a room with music too, by the way. Oh, yeah. I used to work at a diner and we put on yeah. uh, the harsh noise band Wolf Eyes at a low volume at like three and the four in the morning and all the That's frat right. people would like just get uncomfortable and leave without actually, they were too drunk to know why they were That's leaving. Right. They were just like, suddenly like it's time to go. Yeah. So it's again, it's not up to me to tell you guys how to use this stuff, right? You you can use it. But a song is also an environment. Mm-hmm. And it's both context-dependent memory and state-dependent memory because most of the music people engage with is in some level emotionally engaging. Mm-hmm. Now, but underneath that, you say, yeah, now, you know, DJs do this and cover bands do this. Yes, there are older songs that tie into the memories. But inside those older songs, there's a reason that they uh, became popular in the first place or broke mm-hmm. through inside the music itself. And if you if you want to be a great musician, you unlock those things and apply it to apply some of those tools to your new songs and you'll start mm-hmm. to have an effect with your new songs where people really go, oh, I want to dance to this even though I've never heard of it before. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, for the musicians in the audience, dynamics, use mm-hmm. dynamics, louds and softs. Yeah. Uh, it's not every, almost every pop song gets, has a breakdown and then a powerful chorus at the end and that, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, variation and the element of surprise. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think surprise is, is a critical aspect of magic and one that is often kind of overlooked. But um, I think, yeah, what you said about dynamics and volume, I just had a conversation with some DJ friends the other night and we were talking about effects. And he's like, you know what effect I think is underrated? The volume knob. Literally just turning down the volume That's so right. everyone kind of gets used to chatting over it. And then as the song is getting to like, you know, the funkier part, I'm just turning the volume back up. And suddenly people are like, whoa, what's this? Yeah. And they're like getting into it. And it's just that little volume adjustment of kind of bringing it outside of your awareness and then back into your awareness. Can I do an experiment? Let's see yeah. if this will work. I'm going to do a very simple trick with a guitar. It's simple, the simplest possible thing. Got it? Uh huh. That's all. Did you feel something? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. It's that easy. (laughs) Energy intensifies. Yeah. Well, and I think that's what um, has been this kind of gap for a while. And I think I I, I was so appreciative of the way that you talked about this um, because there's been so many magic books I've read that start with this straw man of science as this logical, positivist, rationalist who's like, Mm. it's only materialism. And I think the true domain of science is so much more nuanced and complicated than mm. so many scientists personally have moved beyond, and like philosophies moved past that. So it's really weird to kind of just create this fictional arch nemesis who's like, magic is not real, and then like deconstruct that. Mm. And I like that you just sidestep that completely and you talk about religion Mm. Not doing what the, you know, atheist straw man does of saying, oh, you think there's just some bearded guy in the clouds? It's like, no, there's actually very complex ways. Can I outline that very quickly for the Please, listener? please, yes. So there's, I do think that religion, magic, and science are in a triangle. They will always be in a triangle based on the tensions between what they're trying to get done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this triangle will never be resolved, um, yeah. but it also generates power that you can use in the real world. So... Religions are started by magicians. Someone has an interesting idea that's powerful, that moves people, mm-hmm. and frequently shows people how to um, 
you know, I don't know, vibrate on another level or have a spiritual experience or take them into an, a chakra experience or hypnotize them or whatever, but they generate, uh, it seems to me that all um, people who start religions are able to generate spiritual experiences that are actually can be magic tricks. Mm-hmm. So some individual through their own will decides to uh, start a movement around something they can uh, generate in people and a philosophy. But once the religion started, the word religion has uh, ties to the same Latin root as the word ligature. Mm. And a good definition that helps you understand it is it's what binds us together in common doctrine. And therefore, the most once a religion is started, the most important thing is to keep a group of people mm-hmm. together, not the individual. And that's why magicians are always going to be very threatening to religions because magic is inherently about getting your individual will done. And because... Magicians can reverse engineer the magical rituals that are inside every religion, like prayer, like um, mm-hmm. liturgy, like devotional music. Cool. So there's, that's why there's always a tension because a magician can always come in and rewrite the religion and splinter it off. So that's always going to be challenging to a people who go, no, we just want to keep the group together, guys. Science is about... Uh, Making predictions, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's about making predictions based on um, the collection and dissemination of data. Mm-hmm. So science has this ideal that it always wants to push towards the objective, but the objective is an orientating goal that you never actually achieve. It's, you can be more objective, but you can't be totally objective. Yeah. Um, because even, and this is a bit controversial, but even the maths, science depends entirely on maths and maths is entirely conceptual. Like the number two has no objective reality. It has a philosophical or symbolic reality. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> anyway, so science tries to get repeatable results and then it can build a model, which is always just a map from those repeatable results. Magic is the same, except it uh, it's, doesn't care about being objective at all. Mm-hmm. So it's inherently, I would argue, what, if you're really trying to get spells that actually produce a result as a magician, then uh, you, you're, in, you're playing with your own subjectivity of the target mm-hmm. or the person you're taking through. And um, most importantly... Uh, the intersubjectivity. Now, people go, well, there's objectivity, which is better, and mm-hmm. then there's <laughs> subjectivity, which is dumb because we can't measure it. Yeah. And that's the thing with science is it can only use what it can measure. Okay, except that, okay, what's going on in Devin's head right now is really not much use to me because I can't access it and vice versa. But mm-hmm. Devin and I are having an interaction, which I call intersubjectivity. That's mm-hmm. where music lives. That's where art lives. That's where um, having sex with your wife lives. That's where a road rage lives, whatever. That's where magic lives. The McDonald's Corporation, yeah. Yeah, that's where advertising lives. Magic is the, uh, is the manipulation of subjectivity in order to get repeatable results. So magic will always be airy-fairy to a scientist mm-hmm. and magic will always be threatening to a religion trying to keep a group together. Does that make sense? And these tensions are, are not necessarily bad things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, wonderful way of putting it and it kind of makes me just realize that religion is trying to sort of defend their one hypothesis as like, we've got to make this work. This is definitely it. We've got to get rid of anything to the contrary. Science is actively trying to disprove hypotheses to try and get at this Mm. more, like you said, you know, moving in this direction of objective truth. And the magician, I think, is inherently pragmatic. And that's where I think the confusion gets because it's like, oh, well, did you did you do your magic and immediately get what you wanted? And it's like, mm. no, because it's not 
religious. It's not ironclad, like verifiable in that way. It's not science. It's not technology where, you know, I, I know the physics. If I throw the ball, it's going to hit the thing. It's the rough guesswork of life of like, well, how do I move in this direction? And there's so many variables. I need mm. to have as many levers to pull as I, I can at my disposal uh, to try and get there. Because it's not just as simple as closing my eyes and wishing for it or just applying hard work and that'll eventually pay off. There's some very mysterious way that we don't understand. You know, how do some people uh, get a book published and other people... Mm. get foiled and go around in circles, you know? Mm. How do we move towards the reality that uh, we want to find ourselves in? Um, exactly. Science is having... You, you mentioned uh, materialism. No, that, that shows our age, in a sense, as, <laughs> as middle-aged men. We're, because we grew up with this um, education where I presume... I'm making a presumption, but I, I suspect it's true, whereby matter is the most real... And mm -hmm. the model we grew up with, and things like consciousness, are um, emergent qualities that come out of matter. So that, mm -hmm. for instance, your brain is the object, and that object produces your consciousness. Um, but actually, science is having a moment right now, and I would argue materialism's dead in science. It's gone, mm -hmm. um, and I particularly mean quant uh, physics and quantum physics. Um, which was where the matter question actually mattered and the only place yeah. it really truly mattered. And what I mean by this is the model, since um, E equals MC squared and, and even further experiments since then, it was shown that, in a sense, matter is condensed energy. And when it really comes down to it, they've got, uh, when you do... When you try and look at the smallest things, the matter disappears. There's no true location. There's no true time. There's no true passage of time exactly anymore. And what you get is uh, little bits of information, little bits of measurable energy or information. I argue uh, energy and information are kind of two ways of saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And if, you, if you'll bear with me on that... Um, Information is now more fundamental than matter, which is back to the worldview of our ancestors. And here's what I mean. That's exactly what the alchemists thought, if you really if people for people who take the time to understand what they meant. They said the world uh, they said basically matter is condensed spirit. And by spirit, by the way, they didn't mean ghosts. Mm -hmm. They although ghosts might be in there, they meant the number two is a spirit, a song is a spirit, all concepts are spirit. The world of the mind, of the rational mind is spirit. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Two plus two equals four is spiritual. <laughs> so they meant uh, the intellect is spiritual. So what they were saying is concept comes first, information comes first, and then matter is condensed information. Cool. This leads us to a really fascinating place because if... A materialist says that a materialist says that we have a brain and the workings of our brain produce our consciousness. And now a quantum physicist comes along and says, "Yeah, but underneath the brain is fluctuating information that passes in and out of existence." And by the way, this also shows that the universe is always creating itself because we've never been able to create a true vacuum with nothing in it, mm -hmm. which is also exactly what uh, the Kabbalists said. <laughs> they said the world is, the universe is always creating itself. So must information be condensed into matter to then go on to produce consciousness, which is no longer matter, it's now, or can information just skip the matter part and become conscious itself? And if it can, you have your world of spirits and angels and demons and ghosts and whatever you want, which is the world of the of all of our ancestors, all indigenous people, mm -hmm. um, the alchemists. The it's the we're back to a worldview through science that is remarkably similar. If you, if one takes the time to really understand what they meant, is remarkably similar to the pre scientific worldview and the physical presence of information of mm. how do we go from a forest of trees to then 
you've got the same amount of wood pulp, but now it's a library of books. So mm. it's organized in a different way. And now we could have that same library on a hard drive and mm. it's just stored in this very ephemeral way. And yet it's the same amount of information that was in that library previously. And exactly. Yeah, as our world, um, you know, we're getting more and more used to this. I mean, you know, I think you and I are having an abstracted conversation right now on other sides of the globe. That's and right. now that's become the working reality after the pandemic yeah. of everybody being like, yeah, you know, little kids grow up and their aunts and uncles are faces on a screen that sometimes visit and show up in the real world, but are more, more often than not like a FaceTime call. Well, Devon, mm-hmm. it's now 2024. Yeah. We are now entering a world where people are about to have relationships with artificial intelligences. Yeah. Like romantic relationships and other things. Oh, yeah, that's happening. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so inf- information and, you know, in, in a sense, that is, uh, that is what spirits are. Mm-hmm. And I think that leads us in an interesting direction because you know, a relationship is an exchange of information. And that if you if you want to be slightly more materialist about it, you know, you're triggering oxytocin and other hormones and things, sure. that are, you know, c- connecting with those ideas of comfort and stuff and kind of give them a way to manifest. But what I thought was so interesting in your book, getting to the end in your chapter about smart people traps... Yeah, (laughs) that's my punchline. Yeah, because I think the whole book is a little bit of a smart person trap in a way. That was Uh, the idea, yeah. Yeah, and so I would love for you to just kind of break open this idea for everybody, and I think we can find the way that that uh, information can kind of suck you in. Well, thanks, Devin, because you're the first person who's taken my dare that the book offers so far. (laughs) I think the world needs this concept, and that's why I wrote a chapter ladies and gentlemen, called Smart People Traps. Mm -hmm. Smart People Traps are pastimes, uh, you know, video games, philosophies that are so eternally, they generate self-interest. They're so complex and rich and eternally Mm -hmm. interesting for those people who can take the time to understand them. To be a smart person trap, the thing has to be, so complicated that most people aren't interested in it. But it offers a challenge, which smart people like challenges, and they'll look at the subject and go and 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 suddenly feel, take the time to understand it, start to understand it a little bit, mm-hmm. and then and then start to feel very special that they're one of the ones who understand it. So for example, uh post-structuralist philosophy functions this way. Mm-hmm. Um Oh, it's in my book. Was it Foucault? Anyway, one of them said that, um, my basically to paraphrase, my lectures aren't there to mean anything. They're just there to generate mm, an effect. Lacan. In the Lacan. Yeah. Lacan was Lacan, yeah. It's in my yeah. book anyway. Um, okay, so here's the thing about smart people trap. They're always complicated for the sake of being complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, they always, are gen- they're eternally interesting, so they always generate a level of interest. They always appeal to people's vanity of the people who can understand. It's like, yeah, I'm smart enough to get this. And so there's a certain kind of initiatory hierarchy that gets concerned. But most importantly, that they have no pragmatic value at all. They produce no, no use except to trap smart people. And finally, the most important thing, people below a certain level of intelligence or people who simply can't be bothered putting in the effort, are immune Mm. to the smart people trap. I think it actually explains the state of the world. If you ever wondered why, you know, your politicians, your politicians are always maybe like a little bit above average, Mm -hmm. but they're never geniuses like nearly ever. Yeah. Not, you know, hardly ever. And you wonder why aren't the smart people running the world? It's because the smart people are too buried in these... uh, Practices that waste all their time, like being post-structuralists or... um, If you're so smart, why aren't you rich? And it's like, well, you don't actually have to be that smart to get rich. You have to just focus on, 
you know, pursuing something that is constantly generating money and an intellectual puzzle is probably not one of those things most That's of the right. Time. And um, smart people get bored easily and yeah. <laughs> to get one way to get rich is just to do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. You know. But th- that uh, that chapter hit me hard because I, yeah. I get stuck in those all the time. Yeah. And I recognize that feeling where reading a kind of philosophical therapy book about language recently, they talk about the idea of the virtual text, which Mm. is sort of, you know, let's say you read a book and then I'm asking you, what was that book about, Ari? You're Mm. now reciting the virtual text to me, which is kind of what you took away. Almost like silly print, you know. It's not an exact copy of the text. You're not a large language model where I can say, what does it say on page 84? It's like you've internalized your version and I think there are some books that I read that are just at that edge beyond where I'm. it's easy for me to understand. And mm. it feels like it's stretching me as I read it. I'm kind of like, whoa, hold on. This idea is really cool. Oh, it's enjoyable. But it's like, yeah. yeah. And, it, and you, you phrase it quite nicely where you're like, yeah, it, like, it's like mental exercise. It's mm. exciting and invigorating. I, I do go problems on my phone. You know, I like... Um, I've thought about for a long time these games of reference that people play, especially I think more masculine people yeah. of like, oh, well, have you heard this thing? Or what about this thing? And oh, yeah. that movie, if you like that movie, you're not going to like this. And it's just this complex web of reference and how do we move about in that space? Totally, mm. totally a smart person maze or just a... <laughs> Very often is. Big, big, yeah, big nerdy circle. Well, like any <laughs> musician who... Um, you know, any anyone into a level of music that almost no one else can stand. Yeah you know, like atonal black metal or whatever, um, sort of functions just like a smart person trap. To to be interested in a kind of music that's deliberately designed to be difficult to listen to just so most people go away, just so Mm -hmm. that the people who do figure out how to enjoy it can feel more special and then start dressing the same way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right, so I'm not going to tell you guys how, but I'm just saying the last roughly um, 150 words of my book is how to lever a smart person trap into a tool. Mm-hmm. So I have, got, ladies and gentlemen, not only defined the smart person trap, the first person to define the smart person trap, but I've also tell you how to get over it. But you're going to have to buy my book, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you've you've created something that is very wizardly and paradoxical and that it is both. Like, Mm. you can read this book and you can just kind of chew on these ideas and follow up and it's going to take you into Oliver Sacks and the breakdown of consciousness Mm. and the bicameral mind and all of these really interesting things. That book is like an incredible... Okay, (laughs) Julian, I I don't... This is probably a real nerd moment because almost no one knows who Julian Jaynes actually is. But... (laughs) To me, that whole book is a giant smart person trap. Oh, yeah. So the... I don't, we shouldn't stay on this for too long. But this guy generates this thesis whereby he, he says, well, in the past, people wrote literature in a different way than they do now. And nowadays they go, I went for a walk. I did this. I did this. And in the past, they said, uh, Jupiter spoke to me and mm-hmm. <laughs> Jupiter spoke to this person. So it's never in personal terms in ancient Greek literature. It's always in terms of muses, gods, and spirits, and that sort of thing. And so he decided that this is because in the past, uh, the human beings had a different brain that Mm -hmm. was split in two, that the the corpus callosum, even though it was there, that joins the two hemispheres of the brain, somehow didn't actually function, that Mm -hmm. everyone had multiple personality disorder in the past and had no will of their own. And therefore, uh, everyone walked around just doing the whim of gods with none of their own willpower at all, which I think is completely ridiculous. (laughs) But it is certainly very funny. And then he spends several hundred pages filling this out. Now, could it just be that in the past, people um, wrote in terms of their own internal dialogue in terms of spirits? And I talk about this in my chapter called Inner Inner Voices Mm -hmm. versus Outside Voices. If you're an ancient Greek person, you decided to write a poem and you wrote it down exactly like a modern person. It's just when you told people how you were writing the poem, you say, well, I sat around until I got the muse talking to me and then the Mm -hmm. muse put the poem. So you channel the poem. So everything's channeled. 
Yeah. But they still knew they were doing it. Come on. Like, they're still <laughs> modern human beings. They're not, they don't have a different bodies to what we have now. I, I, I don't know. I find that hilarious. But, and a lot of people bought into this idea that in the past, um, people had no willpower and, and they thought that they were just doing the whim of gods in every, every single action in their entire life. And that all of their internal monologue was being spoken to them by spirit, external spirits. Yeah. I think that's just a, d- a different way of saying the same thing that we do now, actually. Yeah. Anyone that's interested in this, you can also just watch the first season of Westworld. And uh, all right, it's a, sure. It's a, <laughs> it's a pretty great explanation of these concepts. But I think that's where I love that you have this pragmatism and it comes kind of full circle for me because hmm. I think. One of the things that I've struggled with since I first got interested in magic is, okay, if all of this stuff on the New Age bookstore really works, Mm. why is this poor sap working for minimum wage at the New Age bookstore? Why not just pick up the book on prosperity magic, carve your candle, and voila, your rich uncle's going to die and you're going to inherit his estate, and then you don't have to work there. And so sometimes, I think chaos magic is very guilty of this. It gets Mm. overly caught up on this idea of, oh, I don't have to justify it. Because it works. If you do certain things, certain results happen. Mm. But if you look at most magical communities, they're not full of rich, successful people who are clearly just manifesting all the time. Yeah. So I think that idea of like utility can be a little bit misleading. But if you come back around to what you were saying about, you know, the, the black metal scene makes it difficult because you then only get certain people that are coming there and there's kind of um, a, a buy-in. To, to do that. But like, that's the uh, value of it for those people. That's the value. Yeah, like you, you had another example in the book where they were talking about um, a psychological study where people, like women were invited to some sort of group discussion. And if they had to do this embarrassing thing and like answer yeah. these questions first, they then found the discussion more valuable, even though the discussion was designed to be kind of boring and pointless. But when we're trying to figure out how to create value in our world, feeling like we're part of a community that takes some work to be a part of, and it's not just what everybody else is doing, I think is one of the biggest appeals that magic is offering. It's saying, hey, Hmm. we're doing something a little bit weird and different. And it's all gotten kind of flipped inside out because I think when we were growing up, these ideas about magic were more obscure and weird and on the outs. Hmm. And now every TikToker wants to tell you about manifestation and these conspiracy theories about you know, 5D space and the psychedelic stuff. Mm. And I think occultism is coming back to this more pragmatic thing of like, hey, the world's weird. You can't it's have doing perfect both. control. You've got, you've got people who, there's a lot of occult, this whole um, whole podcast dedicated to whether people are um, getting all the details of some Renaissance ritual where you have right. to align it with astrological, astrological hours, where you mm-hmm. have to have a lion skin belt made of real lion skin, where you have to get all these incredible details right. Yeah. And, then there's, uh, and then there's other podcasts. I mean, Devon and I are biased, ladies and gentlemen, but if you want, <laughs> if you want the real you- shit, come to a wizard because we <laughs> actually are trying to get things <laughs> done. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we're funnier. But anyway, so there's a few <laughs> things in there. And okay, I can only say this to very few people, but Devin and I have both been out in public dressed as wizards, engaging as street philosophers to the mm. general public. And people come up and ask us, is magic real all the time? And one yeah. thing you get is small children and especially young women asking you, is Harry Potter real or is the magic in Harry Potter real? Uh, mostly small children. At which point I point out, no, you've slightly misunderstood what is going on. J.K. Rowling is a real magician. Harry Potter is a story. Yeah. J.K. Rowling really went from being a DP mum, a mum on a, a, a benefit, yeah. an unemployed mother, single mum, to being an extremely rich and powerful woman, one of the most powerful novelists ever. Yeah. Um, based on some ideas she wrote down in a book. Do you know what I mean? came into her head just yeah. full full force when she was sitting on a train that got That's delayed for like four hours. Yeah. A, a, a yeah. spiritual visitation. Yeah. So uh, why does the, the person in the occult bookshop, why haven't they become rich and powerful? Because the books, and generally when you pick up an occult book, the uh, book is the spell. Mm-hmm. 
And the selling of the book is the point of the spell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one reason. Secondly, there's this assumption that people, why aren't all magicians rich? Or why aren't all occultists rich? Or or all wizards rich? I'm sorry, um, most of you don't want to be rich. You're just yeah. not interested. <laughs> You're just not interested. I, I, I don't give a fuck. Oh, when I would grant wishes on the subway and someone would go, I wish for a million dollars. And I say, my friend, I'm not offering curses. Like, yeah, that's right. No. <laughs> well, no, exactly. You don't want that. <laughs> yeah. If you want to, Devin's not wrong. Go and look at, uh, go, go research stories of on the internet. It's not that hard of people who won the lotto and what their life was like 18 months later. Yeah. Like almost everyone's in a worse state. Some of them were in more debt. Almost everyone has lost uh, family members to arguments. Yeah. It's really fucking awful. Like generally, uh, generally the winning lotto um, makes your life worse. The people who seem to do best by winning, lot- winning lotto are those sorts of um, are the, are the people who go, cool, I'm just going to blow it all as quickly as possible. <laughs> so the peop- and they go to the, it's like, I'm, like it was a great one a story I heard about in my own city about someone who won lotto and, and so got his, got his best mate and they got a um, hotel and they just, they all, they blew it all on bottles of Jack Daniels and, um, <laughs> and like uh, just, just, they just partied for a month until Ooh. all the money was gone. And and I've afterwards, I see people that done that. Yeah. Do you feel like you waste your time? It's like, no, I'll never be able to do that again. It was great. It was awesome. It's like, but you're yeah. back to where you were. It's like, yeah, that's yeah. fine. <laughs> Those yeah. are the people who do best. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. I don't know about you. I imagine it's probably somewhat similar. But the reason that I became a wizard wasn't because I thought it was going to be the fastest route to, uh, mm. you know, fame and wealth, but because I wanted to talk about magic, which I find inherently fascinating and have an interesting life. And I just want to say, Ari, that reading this book, it really moved me in so many ways because you. uh, your ideas are unique and your own, but there's so much like reflection and mirroring and similar paths that we as two wizards are walking on. Mm. And I, you know, you did an apprenticeship. I started this kind of being like, I'm going to call myself a wizard and figure Mm. it out as I go. And I've had to figure out how am I discerning between what of this I find to be charlatanism and bullshit and what I find really interesting and powerful. Mm. And seeing that reflected, I'm just so proud to be uh, one of the 21st century wizards alongside of you who's starting to put these ideas into a more distilled form. It's It's been really amazing to, to see what you're doing and how uh, you're channeling that energy into writing now, which I think is very powerful. Thank you. So the plan is to write, for me to write uh, five books. So next year, uh, if everything goes to plan, I will have a two-part, two books on uh, tarot called, the first one's called Psychic Results for the Skeptic. The second title may change, but at the moment it's called uh, Tarot Magical Results for the Reality Hacker. Mm. Um, and then I'm planning to write a spell book for skeptics. And uh, and finally, a book like William James's Varieties of Religious Experience. Mine will be an extended book about what, what's really going on with spirit phenomena, what we can say about mm-hmm. it, what we can't say about it. How come you hire a medium to talk to your dead great uncle who uh, left a safe that no one yeah. can unlock? How come you can't usually get the combination to the safe from the medium? You, mm. you can get all sorts of spooky information from the medium. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of this is already covered in my first book, but the that fifth book will be entirely devoted to spirit experiences of of every possible kind. And that's the plan. Um, Finally, a lot of this stuff, especially my first book, came out of seven years being the apprentice to the Wizard of New Zealand. Lots of uh, discussions and debates with him. He certainly put me onto a huge uh, number of books that I read and uh, many of the ideas were triggered by him or by the questions that people were asking me on the street or by the things I've learned um, by being a, a successful musical performer, frontman, and a teacher of music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think wizards are mentors. And if 
you know, we're going to lure people into these smart people traps. At least stars are uh, fun to chew on. Yeah. So uh, let's end with a little spell. I know that you don't want to become a self-help guru just quite yet, but okay. um, what is something that if a listener is going, wow, aside from buying your book, uh, what can what can they do to bring a little bit of pragmatic, magical thinking into their life? Cool. So I have this thing I call in the beginning of my book, Red Toyota Corolla Syndrome. This is a retitling of um, something in psychology, which is called the Bader-Meinhof effect. Mm-hmm. But basically, if you buy a red Toyota Corolla, or in fact, any common car, you'll start seeing that make and color of car all over the road everywhere you go. Could it be that the universe is lining itself up to send you a message? Or could it be that you've just uh, changed what you're paying attention to? Either way, I consider this a reality tunnel hack. If you're not getting what you want, Mm -hmm. try changing what you pay attention to. Beautiful. Thank you, Ari. Thank you very much, Devin. For more of Ari's magic, there's nothing I would recommend more than going out and grabbing a copy of Pragmatic Magical Thinking. Obviously, you can have that shipped to your door in a day or two from Amazon, but I'd say buy it from the publisher or a bookseller that isn't, you know, a giant globe-destroying monopoly. But you do you. And for more of the wizardry, weirdness, silliness, and psychology that we swirl around here on This Podcast is a Ritual, you can check out patreon.com slash thispodcastisaritual where you'll find bonus content, DJ mixes, wizardly book recommendations, and so much more. You'll also be giving a very small amount of money to a wizard, who is me, who will use it to continue to make more magical content, and that unites us in this shared goal of making the world a more magical place. So, in the spirit of pragmatism, magic, and thinking, I wish you all wonderful thoughts, magical adventures, and pragmatic solutions to the world's many problems.